0: Welcome, once again, if, if you're joining us since the beginning of the service, my name is Kyle, uh, one of the pastors here at this church, and we're doing this morning what we have really the joy and the privilege of doing every Sunday morning, which is opening up God's Word together and expecting to encounter God, to encounter the very voice and words of God. And this morning, we're going to be opening up, once again, just as we did last week, to the book of Matthew chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 18 through 25. El Evangelio según Mateo, capítulo 1, versículos 18 a 25. If you're just joining us for the first time, or it's been a while, we're two messages into our Christmas series this year, which we have titled, effectively, Christ is Born for You. And last week, We learned from Matthew's genealogy in the first 18 verses of Matthew that he was born from sinners like us for sinners like us. But the question that's posed before us this morning is, what was he born to do for sinners? What what was it precisely that he was born to do? So... If you don't have a Bible with you, or if you've never read the Bible or spend some time, we have extras under the chairs of the center aisle, or you can open up your phone's browser to Matthew 1. We'll be reading from the ESV version. And with that, would you read along with me, beginning in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been... betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call His name, Jesus. For He will save His people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name, Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be freshly affected this morning by what has probably to many of us become a familiar story, an expected story. Lord, would you do this morning what we don't expect? Would you confront us with truths in a way that we haven't yet been confronted with them before? Would you reveal your Son to us in a way that captivates and captures our hearts, We ask this in his name. Amen. In the 1990 Christmas movie, Home Alone, and yes, I'm starting this sermon off with a reference to Home Alone. Near the end of the film, if you've seen it, and you probably have, the two home invaders, Marv and Harry, have run upstairs and are chasing the eight year old child whom they're chasing, which is quite disturbing in itself, down a hallway. And Harry trips over a wire that has been set for him, knocking him unconscious. When Harry comes to, Marv, his compatriot, is standing above him saying, Harry, don't move. What Harry knows in that moment, if he knows anything else, is that Marv is there to help him, he thinks. But he's looking up at Marv while he's lying on his back, wondering, what has Marv come to help me with? He doesn't know why Marv is saying, Harry, don't move. And we find ourselves in a similar place in our Christmas series. Wonderfully, we've learned that Jesus was born from sinners and born for sinners like us, but in what way was he born for us? What is the problem that he came to resolve? Was, was Jesus born to, to solve the unhappiness of sinners through Christmas sentiment? Was, was Jesus born to resolve the morality of sinners by growing up to be a good example for us? Now, what Harry soon finds out about what Marv has come to help him with is that there is a giant tarantula on his chest and Marv quite unwisely is choosing to resolve Harry's problem with a crowbar and blunt force and it doesn't work out for Harry if you know the movie but, but listen likewise the, the answer to why Jesus was born for sinners like, like the disturbing reality of realizing there is a tarantula on your chest and your friend is trying to solve it with a crowbar, the reality of why Jesus was born for sinners is quite disturbing. It's actually quite disturbing. Friends, Christmas is fantastic. It is better than fiction. It is the best story that has ever been told. It is something we should never become familiar with. It is better than anything we could imagine But if you are a Christian in this room, my concern for us is that we have become overly familiar with the story of the incarnation of the Son of God. We've heard this story every year, and so the incarnation does not deeply affect us. We come to expect it. This is just the routine that we go through every year. So instead, we remain unaffected by what should deeply affect us. So how can we avoid being unaffected? Well, One of the ways, if not the first step toward avoiding being unaffected, is to confront the disturbing reality of the incarnation. Because once we are confronted with what is disturbing about the birth of Jesus then and only then can we be freshly affected by the wonder and the beauty and the comfort of the birth of Jesus. If we do not come to terms with what is disturbing, Christmas does become routine, familiar, unimpressive, expected. Listen, that the phrase, Christ is born for you, is disturbing before it's comforting. Christ is born for you is disturbing before it's comforting. Pastor C.J. Mahaney says that Christmas is normally sentimental, romanticized, and domesticated, but you don't get Christmas until you are first disturbed and even offended by Christmas. So let's take a fresh look at Matthew's account of Jesus' birth to discover what's disturbing and potentially even offensive about the incarnation so that we might leave here today freshly affected by the incarnation of the Son of God. So in Matthew's account, Joseph is the main character. In Luke's account, which is a much more expanded account, Mary takes center stage, but Matthew focuses his account on Joseph, and there was no way that Joseph saw any of this coming. Joseph, Joseph was on cloud nine. Everything was, was roses for Joseph. He was betrothed to Mary, and in that day betrothal, was, it was a legal contract. It wasn't like modern-day engagement where it's more of just sort of a a verbal agreement. This was a legal contract that had to be legally broken if it were to be broken. So Joseph was on his way to marrying the woman that he loved, and everything was just going dandy. They had done everything right according to law and tradition. They had remained pure and chaste, and everything was going as planned. But verse 18, Mary was found to be with child. Who told Joseph? Who told Joseph? Have you ever thought about that? It was likely Mary herself who told Joseph. And just imagine the scene. She comes to him and says, Joseph, Joseph, I have something I need to tell you. And, and And trust me, I am as perplexed as you are going to be. Joseph, I'm pregnant. But I haven't been unfaithful. You have to believe me. I haven't been unfaithful. The angel Gabriel, she he 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 appeared to me just the other night in a dream and and said that I I would I would be with child. But this wouldn't just be any child. He, he, told me, he told me that he would be called the Son of the Most High. And, and he would have the throne of David, of King David himself, and that his, his reign would last forever. Joseph, that, I don't understand it. I think this is something really special, but you have to believe me. And you can only imagine Mary trying to persuade Joseph with tears in her eyes. And you can only imagine Joseph with tears in his eyes not buying it. Not buying it. Because his betrothed was pregnant. And since the beginning of the history of the world, there was only one way by which a woman becomes pregnant. And it wasn't Joseph who had done it. The only way that Joseph could have known what had actually happened was divine revelation apart from that Mary seems like she's just making up a desperate story so verse 19 Joseph being a just man which means that he feared God and he obeyed God's law he took it seriously being a just man he knew that marrying her was no longer an option he had to divorce her he had to break the legal arrangement To to marry her would have been an admission of his own guilt. That that they had come together before they were married. It would have meant his own shame. It would have implicated him as the wrongdoer. And he had done nothing wrong. And so he had no choice but to divorce her. He was a just man, but he he was also a kind man. And so we resolved to divorce her quietly. Verse 19 says that he, he did not want to put her to public shame. Author Legan Duncan says that when God chose a human father for his own son, he chose a man who was righteous and kind. Qualities that reflect God the Father himself. But listen, if this if this godly man had been stunned by the events up to this point, he was—he hadn't seen anything yet because as he's considering these things, verse 20, as he's ruminating on what in the world is going on, he goes to sleep that night. And an angel appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, and that address roots this story in the preceding genealogy, which we saw last week, which announced that Jesus, the Christ, would be the son of David, the son of Abraham, the one who is grounded in the promises of God. And this grounds Joseph in that genealogical line. Joseph, son of David, you, you man with a royal heritage, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Oh, this was huge. Joseph needed to hear this. He needed to hear, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Why was this huge for Joseph? Because he feared God. Because he did not want to. He he feared offending God. Beyond that, by taking an already pregnant woman to be his wife, they both would be subject to social suspicion and shame and religious scrutiny. And so the angel says, do not fear. Why, Joseph, should you not fear? Because that which is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit, not her unfaithfulness. Her story checks out. She's telling the truth. This is from God himself. And so, Joseph wakes up, verses 24 and 25, and he does as the angel had commanded him. And he took Mary as his wife, and they did not come together until until the child was born. And Joseph adopted the child as his own son and gave him the name that he was commanded to give to him. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's it's romantic. Even Joseph has been rescued from his broken heart. More than that, he he's been he's been brought into the mystery of the incarnation of the Son of God. So what is so disturbing about this? Two things. First, the incarnation, the Christmas story, confronts us in our sinfulness. It's the first thing that's disturbing, is that we are confronted with our sinfulness through the Christmas story. This is no ordinary child to be born. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. Notice the angel quotes in verse 23, Isaiah seven fourteen. which which says hundreds of years before, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Just check out the buildup in the preceding genealogy. That tells us that there is something very significant about this child. It's clear up to this point that this child is the fulfillment of God's promises, the one that Jews like Mary and Joseph had been expecting for centuries, for millennia. And the angel says to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. Again, a name that is familiar to us. But Jesus is the same name in Hebrew as the Old Testament name Joshua. And do you know what this name means? It literally means one who saves. It means Savior. Did you know that? Did you know that Jesus means Savior, the angel comes to Joseph and says, you shall call this child Savior. J.C. Ryle points out, the rulers of this world have often called themselves great, conqueror, bold, magnificent, and the like. The Son of God was content to call himself Savior. And what will this one called Savior save from? Look at verse 21. For he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. This is the moment where we should find ourselves disturbed by the story of the Incarnation. Because Jesus was not conceived in the womb of the virgin to provide sinners with a good moral example. Jesus was not conceived in the womb of the virgin to satisfy our sentiment. Listen, our our minds and our hearts are full of a sense of things that we need salvation from. Just think of Joseph, for instance. He he was aware, he was very aware of Israel's need for salvation from Roman occupation. In fact, that is what he and the rest of the Jewish population thought the Messiah was coming for, to save them from the Romans. If you read the Gospel of John, you realize that is what people thought Jesus had come to do. Joseph had a sense of need to be saved from his own heartbreak. There's no doubt about that. Joseph had a sense of need to be saved from the the social stigma and shame that was about to dominate his life. But Jesus was conceived in the womb of, of, of this virgin to save Joseph from his sin. You, you may sense your need to be saved from the here and now consequences of your bad decisions. You may have a sense of need for salvation from the busyness that you have trapped yourself in. How do I get out of this? I'm aware that I've put myself in a bad position and I need to be rescued from it. You may sense your need to be saved from the family that you married into. And maybe the holidays are just a reminder of that. You you may have a sense of need for your bank account to be saved from your undisciplined spending habits. Another poignant reminder around this time of year. But listen, Jesus was sent to save you from your sin. From your sin. He was born from sinners like us, for sinners like us, to save sinners like us from the righteous wrath of God against angry, lustful, bitter, vengeful, prideful, arrogant, envious sin. This is what's disturbing about Christmas. Christmas does not tell you you are a good person who just needs a better example. Christmas does not tell us you are a good person who just needs a little pick-me-up. Accurately understood, Christmas is an annual reminder that God had to be born into this world to save me from my sin. It dissolves our delusions of lesser needs for salvation. And it tells us, disturbingly, what we really need to be saved from. Listen, the birth of Jesus would not have been necessary if it were not for our sin. It wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have needed to have taken place. Again, C.J. Mahaney rightly points out that Christmas is the end of thinking you are better than someone else. Because Christmas tells you that you could never get to heaven on your own. Because God had to come to you. Martin Luther hundreds of years ago said a person must confront their own sinfulness in all of its ravaging depths before they can enjoy the comforts of salvation. Christmas is fantastic. The incarnation is marvelous. It is a comfort like no other, but before it is, it gets a little bit more disturbing. The second reason why why this account is disturbing is because the incarnation, the story of Christmas, confronts our false saviors. It confronts our false saviors. The the marquee question that stands above this, this story is, can Jesus Save us from our sins. You shall, name his, you, you shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from his sins. But can he? Can he do this? Can he carry the weight of your hope? Can he carry the weight of your hope? Well, the second title given to him by the angel, and mind you, the, the first name given to him, that is, that is his his office. He is Savior. That is what he has come to do. Second title, Emmanuel, that describes his nature. It describes who he is. In Emmanuel, Matthew tells us, in this side note, means God with us. Who can save us from our sins? Only God. And this text tells us that You shall name his name Jesus, for he has come to save his people from their sins. You shall also call him Emmanuel. He is God with you. Oh, Joseph, this is the one who has come, who will be born to save you from your sins, and he is the one who is able to save you from your sins. J.I. Packer says that the Christmas message actually rests on the fact that the child in the manger was God. was God. Listen, we, we have a sense of need for lesser salvations, and we look to lesser saviors to, to save us from that which we're looking to be saved from. Saviors that cannot carry the weight of our hope. What, what, what kind of saviors do we look to? Well, t- tis the season. holidays and vacations. We'll we'll, we'll call these moments of escape. Moments of escape are saviors we look to. You wanna be saved from your busyness or saved from the, the, the life that you've just grown to be utterly discontent with. And so you build your life around these moments of escape, waiting for the next big holiday, waiting for the next vacation, that you plan so that you can escape for this. Savior's like, a better job and more money. That will save me from my poor decision-making, from my undisciplined spending. Maybe looking forward to, hoping for a a wife or a husband, Been waiting for years. That's going to save me from my loneliness and my sadness. How about a new start in a state not called California? That's a Savior that Californians too often look to and think, oh, maybe, that, maybe that will save me from all of this, whatever all of this is. And for each Californian hoping for salvation outside of California, all of this is very different. Looking to the Savior of doing better and trying harder. Oh, there is a Savior we're all prone to look to. Maybe you know you need to be saved from your sin, but the Savior you're looking to is yourself. Just do better. Try harder. Maybe tomorrow will be a better day. Listen, Christmas is disturbing because the announcement of the divine Savior reveals and confronts all of our false saviors. Listen, and write, write this down. God was born into the world because no one else could carry the weight of our hope. God was born into this world because no one else could carry the weight of your hope. If there was a Savior sufficient to save you from whatever you're hoping to be saved from, Jesus would not have had to have been born if there was a Savior sufficient to save you from your sin, Jesus would not have had to have been born. Charles Spurgeon said, other so-called saviors do but mock the hopes of mankind. They promise fairly, but they utterly deceive all who rely upon them. Other so-called saviors do but mock the hopes of mankind. Apart from Jesus, none can carry the weight of your hope. The best they can do is mock your hope. So You, you foolish person for thinking that there's hope. It will be dashed upon the rocks of what's coming. Yesterday, after the U.S. lost to the Netherlands, if you haven't watched the game yet and you were hoping to avoid the disappointment that was sure to come from that game. They lost to the Netherlands 3-1, and shortly thereafter, USA Today published an article titled, It's the Hope That Kills Us. It's the hope that kills us. And isn't that Hope suffocates our lives when our saviors can't carry the weight of our hope. Hope is crushing when hope is unfulfilled. Better not to hope at all if none can deliver what we hope for, right? Better to just set the expectations low. Better not to have hope at all if none can deliver what we hope for, if all saviors, listen, if all saviors mock our hopes, then below the facade of our entertainment and our busyness and our sentimentality, below that facade, all of life really is disturbing. Because it's hopeless. And that's the reason why it's worthwhile to confront the disturbing nature of Christmas. Because after Christmas is disturbing, it is full of hope. It is full of comfort. It is full of joy. Because Jesus can save you from your sins. He is the only Savior capable of saving you from your sins. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And he was born to save us. He was born to take your place, and bear the penalty you deserved and to do it upon a cross, dying in your place. He was born to die. God took on human flesh to die in the place of sinful humanity. And so Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says, Consequently, as a result of this, he is able to save to the uttermost. John three seventeen, the verse after the most famous verse in the Bible says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. Having been confronted with the disturbing reality of your own sin, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn you for it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And having been sent to that for that purpose, Hebrews seven twenty five, he is able to save to the uttermost. And upon a cross... He would save to the uttermost and rise again three days later, vindicated as the righteous son of God. He is no false savior. He is no so-called savior. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Once again, J.C. Ryle says, happy is that person who trusts not merely in vague notions of God's mercy and goodness, but in Jesus. Happy is the person who trusts not merely in vague notions of salvation and joy and peace on earth, but in Jesus, who is the embodiment of all of those. We are only happy in him if we are first disturbed by our own sinfulness and by the inability of all other so-called saviors. So friends, th- th- this week, do, do the work. Identify those lesser needs of salvation that prevent you from being aware of your need for salvation from sin. You know, we're so aware of all the other things that we want to be saved from, and so so crowded does our heart and mind become by all of those other lesser needs of salvation that we forget what we really need. Do the work this week of identifying the so-called saviors that you're trusting in, but that can only mock your hopes. Are, 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 you, are you trusting in the Savior of, of moments of escape? Are you trusting in the Savior of... of Better job, more money, the possibility of, of a spouse sometime in the future, of maybe your kids calming down a little bit, whatever it might be. What are those so-called saviors that can do nothing but really mock your hopes? If you want to be freshly affected by the incarnation, I know I do. If you want Christmas and what stands underneath Christmas biblically as Christians to mean something to you this year, to not go through the, 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 the humdrum rigmarole of just doing this annual thing of celebrating the birth of Jesus that you don't really care that much about because you know it, well, if you want to be freshly affected, get used to being disturbed on Christmas And once you are, you will find a Savior, born of a virgin, who does not mock your hopes, but who can, who alone can carry the weight of your hope through his birth, his life, his death on a cross, and his resurrection for your life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that that Jesus does not mock our hopes. That the story of the incarnation of the Son of God is not a form of hope that kills us, like all other hopes. We thank you that you sent your Son as the only solution. To our greatest problem, disturbing though it is, so that that problem might be resolved. So that for us, a proclamation of joy to the world could be one that we receive as truth. Could be one that we receive as our own personal experience. We thank you, God. We pray that that you would help us to do the work by your spirit of eliminating our hope in so-called saviors, of eliminating the priority of our sense of need to be saved from, from anything more than our need of salvation from sin. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.